Thank you. Thank you. And as Claire says, Google often. <laughs> um, I now have the pleasure of in introducing our featured speaker today. Mr. George, George Rice Camp is a professor, associate professor of history and the director of the Center for Family History and Genealogy at Brigham Young University, a position he's held since 1993. He has his Bachelor of Arts in Spanish and History from Brigham Young, and he also has his Juris Doctorate from Reuben Clark Law School, BYU. Professor Rice Camp's fam specialty is family history, particularly for Southern European, especially Spain and Latin American areas. He's an accredited professor and genealogist in Spain, and he speaks fluent English and Spanish, and he's been a very active published um, writer and author, authoring many books, many articles, and he's been a prolific teacher for those of us getting started in Hispanic family history. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Reiskamp and turn the podium over to him. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's turn the focus for a moment out to those of you who are here. How many have ancestry who goes to Mexico? Okay, how many have ancestry that goes to Puerto Rico? Cuba? Okay, Argentina? Spain? Most, okay. I'm sure, I mean, I, obviously there's another 11 or 12 countries I haven't named. What's our country that's missing? I didn't see your hand go up. Ecuador, okay. <laughs> Any other country we haven't mentioned? All right, good. Um, today, I'm going to talk about a, an important but different way of looking at your, your genealogy in terms of doing your research. I'm going to talk about the fact that the place is important. And for most of us, we have to have, before we can really do genealogical research, the name of that small place, that ancestral home, the little tiny town in the mountains, the, the parish that's down in the valley or on the beach, and we need that specific place. And I'm not going to talk about the way to find that. That's a, a whole separate discussion. But rather, I want to help you to understand the importance of the place and look at the records that are there. Next. You're going to hear me say that word a lot today. Uh, our goals, then, are threefold as we talk about the place. Next. First, locate the place. And that's the challenge of getting a description. Marvelous. If you had ancestors who arrived after 1893 in the United States, then you've got an excellent opportunity of finding them and finding that place on the passenger arrival lists. If you don't have ancestors that arrived here at that time, then there are a whole series of other records that are available. I'm currently involved in a major project called the Immigrant Ancestors Project, where we're gathering emigration records from Europe to be able to help people find that little place by accessing record collections, small and large, in Europe, where people before they left, left records. There are also arrival records in other countries. If your ancestors arrived in Argentina at the Buenos Aires port, for example, excellent collection of records that are indexed online. Uh, unfortunately, only four years out of about 70 give the place small place of origin. So we have to look elsewhere in those cases. But finding the place. 
the name of it first, and then the challenge of locating it on a map, figuring out which Saltillo it is. There are four of them in Mexico. And so when somebody says they're from Saltillo, you're never quite certain until you begin the process. And so there's something to do there. Our second goal is to find the records of the place. We need to decide what exists. We need to go out and know the various options that are available to us. And third, we need to put our ancestors in their place. That is, we need to put them into a community, understand the social and, social and cultural background of that community, and the historical background. Our ancestors did not live in a vacuum, as we do not. They were impacted upon by the culture and the community in which they lived. And their story is in part told in the history of that community. Next. This is a research process, all of this. Actually, I like to think of it as a giant mystery, a history mystery where we can go out and as detectives search for the details and the facts. And it's exciting to see things begin to fit together. Next, a couple of suggestions. The first, prepare as your first step when you know the name of a place and you've identified where it is, a written locality survey, a two or three page report to yourself. Attach to it all of the printouts that you find for that place of records and other materials about the place in the Internet. Copies of the geographical dictionary entries. Copies of different maps for different time periods. I end up at almost invariably with about a half an inch to an inch of paper. And I find myself regularly going back. It becomes my reference Bible. It's got my list of film numbers of what's filmed. It has the websites like NARA's where I can get information. It has the information I've found on Ancestry.com. All of that relating to the place. So as I begin to explore, I have a continual guide to locality information. Secondly, always be place aware. I never go in and look at an index just for the surname. I have the long list of names. And to give you an example of the way this plays out, I have for the last nearly 30 years been researching in a small town called Garganta La Olla in Cáceres in Spain. And I would have thought that I had exhausted everything that was possible. I had a will for a direct line ancestors by the name of Paulina Sanchez. She died in 1734. Excuse me, I didn't have a will. I had a death inventory. She didn't write a will. She left minor children, so they did a detailed inventory of everything in her home. It was very obvious that Paulina had been working as a weaver. She had the cards that you use to stretch the fibers out to make to weave into the thread. She had leftover, partially processed uh, skeins of wool and of cotton. She had actual bars of, and that's probably not, it's a bara in Spanish, I remember the English word, of cloth that, you, that had been wound, parts of that. She was deeply involved in this process. And I've known that for 20 years. But I was in an, a museum, an ethnographic museum, and I, heavy emphasis on textiles, in an in a area about, uh, oh, maybe 50, 60 kilometers from Garganta. And I just said, well, what would you have about textiles in Garganta, remembering Paulina? And he said, oh, there's this marvelous book. And the next thing I know, I've got a book in hand and rushing down, out of print, and rushing down to get a photocopy of it. And in there, it talked about 
the textile industry at the end of the 18th century in the province. And I learned that Gargantalaoya was one of about six major producers. It had no major loom. Instead of a company, it was primarily a cottage industry of women like Paulina Sanchez who were there doing the weaving, gathering the materials, processing things from their own home, taking them to community looms, of which there were two or three, and completing the process. All of a sudden, because I had asked the question about geography and Garganta, I had a context for Paulina and her death inventory and her life that has changed the way I view her, and she has turned from a woman with a strange collection of odds and ends at the time of her death to a woman that was an active participant in an important part of the economy of the community. And, uh, and noted in that fashion, because Garganta was a place where women were the weavers. In most of the other small towns, they were men. So be place aware. And this was after 25 years of working in Garganta. I thought I knew it all, and I didn't. So you're always aware. Let's take a look at the third suggestion. Learn the jurisdictional concepts for your locality. We people have carved the map into various ways of viewing it, jurisdictions, uh, and these have a variety of viewpoints, and you need to be aware and watch for the jurisdictional names because they're going to tie you to records. Oh, that it was simply state, federal, and county records, as it is in many areas in the United States. It's much more complex than that. So you're aware and watching for jurisdictions as you read old materials, old records, as you look at geographical dictionaries. Taking a look at the next one. Um, the jurisdictions, the first, is political. And this is what you'd expect. Generally, the federal governments, the state or province, and municipalities. We'll talk about these. The second, ecclesiastical. In most cases, the Catholic Church. Occasionally, uh, in countries in Latin America, we will have... Jewish congregations, we may have a handful of Protestant congregations, but they're exceptional. Generally, when we talk about church, we talk about the Catholic Church. In fact, being a, a Mormon, I have to be real careful when I talk about the church, because most of my professional life, I'm talking about the church, and it's the Catholic Church. And if I slip and do it that way in my Mormon congregational situation, they're a little confused. So, But the church for us, for researchers, is the, the Catholic Church. The next level, judicial. The two first are the most important. But watch for the judicial records. Many genealogies of Hispanics never get to this level. And yet, marvelous records. I have used and handled court records for the first appellate level from as far back as the late 1300s in Spain. Uh, more and more, we're getting them indexed. The appellate court for the area north of the Rio Tajo has 86 kilometers of records spanning a time period from 1250 to 1834 in its collection. Uh, an immense amount of material. Okay, the next, another level, uh, military. And knowing where to look for military records. Another, the next, notarial. These are extremely important. Notaries are the people who prepared the wills, the marriage contracts, the death inventories, the sales contracts, the contracts to do a work of art in the local parish church, um, 
any kind of contractual relationship, the notary prepared the documentation. Part of the civil law tradition, different than our American common law tradition. And next, there are others, et al., and others, because you're going to find a variety of these. Okay, let's take a look at the next screen. Jurisdictions, again, our two primary distinctions, church and state. Let's take a look first at the state. Normally, we're divided up into civil provinces, sometimes called states or estados, uh, departements in French, and this unit has characteristics of both our states and our counties. So you kind of have to develop an attitude towards these that puts it somewhere between the two in terms of the documentation they may have. Okay, each state is, oops, let's look at Cuba. Not only Spain, but Latin, go down there, yeah, that's good, thank you. The uh, Cuba is divided up into provinces, um, just as all of the other countries in Latin America. And again, these same concepts apply and as we look, then you can see the little yellow lines. These are showing municipal divisions. And the next area that we want to look at are municipalities. A couple of comments on municipalities looking at the next slide. And the first concept is municipalities are coterminous with the states. We have no such thing as an area in any of these countries that's not part of a municipality, that doesn't have an assigned place. There's no uh, un- I've lost the word in English. Unincorporated, Unincorporated thank you. Unincorporated um, areas of the county where there are no cities. Everywhere you go, no matter how high the mountain or how far away it is in the desert, that's part of a municipality. They should appear in the records. They will appear in the census records, that, for example, for that municipality. Another concept. Civil registers, however, may be by municipality, but in other, some countries they are not. Sometimes they attach to separate judicial districts. Taking a look at the next, uh, Spain, for example, from 1870 to the present, the civil register is tied to the first level of judicial activity, the court, El Juzgado de Primera Instancia, the court of the first action. And it's a federal tied in court, it's a federal system, although functioning at the local level, not part of the municipal government. On the other hand, from 1837 to 1870, it was part of the municipal government. When we look for those civil registration records, we find them in a municipal archive. You need then to be aware of these differences to help find the records. You need to understand the divisions. And there are marvelous things available to help us do that. Let's take a look at the next one. At the, first, we need to go to the ecclesiastical level. Uh, it's divided worldwide, the Catholic Church, into dioceses. And presided over the diocese is a bishop or an archbishop. And each diocese is then divided up into parishes, presided over by a parish priest. These are fundamental records, more important than any others. We start with the parish records. We use the others, and I've been working in Garganta on a single family since 1977, and I'm still working in the parish records. I've used probably 30 or 40 other categories of records to complete the picture. But the parish records now back into the, where are you, Peggy, the 15... 1586, and still moving back with the baptisms and marriages. Okay, let's go to the next. These are the dioceses in Spain. There are only 50 provinces. There are 67 dioceses at last count. Um, you'll notice where it talks about looking at the next slide, the 
provincial ecclesiastical province made up of several dioceses. This is presided over by an archbishop. For your purposes, the archbishop is the same as a bishop. Within his diocese, he has the same kinds of court records, marriage dispensations, censuses, and other records. And so there's no real difference. One key thing, though, if he's an archbishop, chances are the other diocese within his province, many if not all of them, were originally part of that archdiocese. And so the archdiocese of Seville, Huelva, Jerez, the Canary Islands, all were part of the diocese of Seville within the last 100 to 200 years, depending on the specific diocese. So you may get a historical continuity. Watch for historical changes. If the parish record, the baptisms where you start, begins uh, this parish in the diocese of, write down the diocese in the year. You'll begin to see if there are changes over time. That may help you when it comes to looking for the records. Um, it may have make a difference in finding those. Let's take a look at the next slide. Um, Let's look at Huesca, a specific diocese. Going to the next slide, we see that Huesca is made up of all of these parishes. In some dioceses, they brought the parish records together in the central diocesan archive. In others, you're still going to find them in the individual parishes. Going to the next one, in Latin America, again, we find the same division. Uh, these are the dioceses for the Republic of Argentina. In the next slide points out one difference from Latin America to Spain. In Spain, we have what is called an arciprestasco in between the, the parish and the diocese. Very rarely, maybe on one hand, most of the time in the uh, 1600s or, or before, do we have any records at the arciprestasco level. But often, the guidebooks, the reference books, will divide the diocese into arciprestascos. So you need to be aware what that is. I think perhaps, anybody ever heard of the Arcipreste de Ita? Okay, famous, uh, if, you were, if you graduate in Spanish literature, uh, Spanish Arcipreste, a priest, archpriest, um, who wrote semi-erotic literature in the 1600s. So, uh, anyway, uh, the only time I'd ever heard of it until I got into, into family history. Let's move on to the next slide. Concept. Each of these jurisdictions may have an archive with records. And that's why we want to know about those jurisdictions. That's what's going to tie us into in archives and records. So we, we may have that. Going on to the next, uh, for example, the civil registers we talked about have archives that are maintained in Spain at the local level. In some cases, they're copies of those records. Mexico has a complete set of copies at the state level maintaining the originals in the original district. And generally, these people are very receptive. This woman was marvelous in this little tiny town of Logrosan in helping a student group that had come in. Okay, the next one. The parish archives are often well-preserved. I have to admit, there is nothing more exciting than holding a parish book written in the early 1500s and sensing that you're touching something that was created within the generation of Columbus's sailing, or even, in some cases, before. The books tend to be well-preserved. If you haven't recognized the person at the bottom, that's me, and it's obvious that, the off, that uh, I'm not as well-preserved as the books. <laughs> a lot heavier and a lot less hair. All right, let's go on to the next. And again, marvelous archives. In many cases, film, but still today, in many cases, not. Often centralized. Next. Next. 
Above the parish are diocesan archives. And these are, going ahead to the next, are the records of the bishop or the archbishop and his court, his advisors, whether they were taking censuses, getting reports on those who had confessed and taken communion in the year, uh, processing marriage dispensations because of consanguinity or affinity relationships. Go ahead. There are marvelous archives. These are students of mine working in the archive for the Archdiocese of Santiago de Compostela, uh, professionally run, maintained with all of the activities that an archive has. Marvelous facility, marvelous people to work with. Sadly enough, incredibly bad humid conditions for record preservation, which means that uh, you often have less there than we have down in Castile, where it's drier and, and more a better set of conditions for records. Go ahead to the next. All right, our goals then. First was to locate the place. We have marvelous tools to do that. Going on to the next. Oh, I thought he was gone. To the next one. Uh, how do I find then... The first question is, how do I find a place that's been mentioned in a record? Going to the next, we have a marvelous collection of geographical dictionaries and atlases for Spain and all of Latin America. I'm just going to use three examples here, Argentina, Cuba, and Spain, in terms of showing you some samples. Going to the first, Ecclesiastical Directory, or Annual, for Argentina in 1961, going to the next, published... An index, uh, this is actually published an index, an alphabetical index at the beginning, listing all the parishes. So if you've got the name of a small town, this is one way to find it. Going to the next, the map we saw earlier to the next. For each diocese, a list of the parishes. Now obviously the 1961 phone numbers and addresses are probably not of much value. But the date for the creation of the archive, and on the far right, the date of its first preserved entry, is very valuable in knowing where to look. Taking a look at the next. For example, if I had somebody who was born in 1905 in Alejandro, um, I might want to know where to look for that person. Alejandro did not have a parish. Uh, the closest two are La Carlota and Reducción. So I would take a look at that list on the next page, and I could see La Carlota had records going back to 1892, Reducción only to 1932. So clearly, since it was created in 1932, they could not have gone to the parish in 1905. So in 1905, I'm going to look in the records for La Carlota. Now, in this particular diocese, before 1892, when they created the parish of La Carlota, everybody went to Rio Cuarto, a very rural area in this northern part of um, Argentina, and therefore uh, those records that go back to 1731, which for an Argentine parish is late. Uh, many of the Argentine parishes go back into the 1600s and even the 1500s. Next. There are also excellent geographical dictionaries available for Argentina. We won't look at any of these right now, but you can find them by simply typing in in uh, an online catalog such as Arlen or WorldCat or perhaps here in the uh, National Archives Library, which I haven't had a chance to look at, but we'll hear from others about today, um, to see what they have, what's available. Okay, going to the next... For Spain, we have several excellent ones. By far the best is the 16-volume uh, Dictionary of 
by Pascual Madoz, published in the 18, mid-1800s. And going to the next, I was pleased, and these are in your syllabus. You have syllabus materials. There's 12 pages listing all of these references as I move too fast for you to possibly write them down. I found that they published a Madoz volume for Cuba. I just recently found it in Miami about a year and a half ago. And to give you an idea of the kinds of things we have here, next... A uh, little blurry, but this is a description of a town, uh, Kanasi, which is on the coast, and it tells us where it's situated, what are the nearby towns. It indicates that it has anywhere from 90 to 100 individuals who live there, how many houses they are, what the weather conditions generally are, economic activity. Going on to the next, we also get details for small, not the smallest towns, but the municipalities of this kind. This house it tells us where the individuals were born. We had several from Spain, Mallorca, Seville, Vigo, Barcelona, Cuenca, uh, mostly men. Uh, only a handful of women came from outside of Cuba. Uh, the vast majority were born in Cuba. We also find out what the houses are made of, whether they're made of just simple mud, whether they're made out of wood, uh, and the other substances that at the moment I'd have to sort out and I'm not going to try to do. We also get an indication as to the economic activity by looking at the jobs that were done. So we're getting a picture of the economic and social life of that community and where it stands. Next. For Spain, and we have an even more detailed ecclesiastical directory that tells us not only the starting date of marriages, baptisms, and deaths, confirmations, but also the date from which those collections are complete. And often, Spain, the collections there run into the 1500s quite regularly. Um, this is actually it's called the Guía de la Iglesia, and it's in your references. Let's go to the next. There are also published at the diocesan level in many of these countries guides. This is one for the Diocese of Santiago de Compostela. Looking at the next page, we see it contains maps of the Arciprestascos. Hence, we needed to know, but what a marvelous way to see the relationship of these various small towns and how they work together and feed into each other, at least ecclesiastically. Going to the next. These exist for other countries of interest. If you have ancestors from Italy, from France, from Portugal, there are similar reference works available that are included in your bibliographic materials. Going to the next. And by the way, your eyesight isn't bad. That's totally out of focus. Uh, online opportunities. I learn from my students because I'm not computer literate. And they're continually finding new websites that give you information and provide greater detail, especially in the geographic area. Going next. Uh, descriptions of the towns and what it's like. Next. Um, monuments, and that is churches, palaces, and others. Go ahead. Um, all right, some concepts again. First, write down any jurisdictional information you find whenever you find it. It'll help you to keep track of the history, to know where to look for that jurisdiction. Next concept. Watch for information, again, about jurisdictional changes over time. That way you're not going to, for example, there are Albacete Diocese was created in 1849. They have brought all the parish, or 1949, they have brought all the parish records there into the diocese. But there are none of the marriage dispensations. If you want to look at marriage dispensations for Albacete, you need to figure out which diocese they carved this 
parishes out of in 1949 to create the Albacete. Because you may look at marriage, and I have done marriage dispensations in Toledo, or Cuenca, or Murcia, or Valencia, depending on which small town and where they belonged in the past. So it's important to watch for these changes as you work with the records. Next. Mexico has an excellent collection of materials. So does Cuba. We've mentioned Argentina. Uh, Ecuador has a very good one. Um, I've, I haven't worked as much with Ecuador, but I have worked in, enough to, to be aware of what's there. Um, you, it's there. It's a question of, of picking it up off the list that you have here as a starting point. As you can see, all of these relate specifically to archival collections, geographical dictionaries, and materials about Mexico. In fact, it's historical materials, thanks to the work of Peter Gerhardt, um, in his three volumes of historical geography for the Mexican area is the best in the world. I've never had a better collection of historical materials, geographic, that, as you do for Mexico. Next, another concept. First, always search for the place as well as the surname. You, if you're going to do an index search, take the moment to type in the name of the place. Don't, don't just limit yourself to the surname. The surname may not appear, but you may find a marvelous census record or a description of the town, a map. All of these things only come, or the textile story for Paulina Sanchez only pop up when you are place aware as you search. Second concept, look for histories and cultural materials. Put your ancestors into the historical and cultural context in which they lived. The life of Paulina Sanchez has so much more meaning to me now as I have ha handled the kind of pots that she would have handled, as I have looked at the traditional clothes that she would have worn on holidays and the work clothes, as I have handled the fabric and the things that go into it. I had no idea what flax was until I started worrying about Paulina Sanchez and seeing how her life fits together. Next. Use the internet. There's a marvelous collection of genealogical societies, and always Google for the place as well. And do it frequently. The, the, the hard part about the internet is it's always changing. That's good, we get a lot of new material. It can be real frustrating when you've lost the old, so uh, I copy it, I don't leave it out there assuming it will be there the next time. On the next one. All right. Our next goal is to find the records of the place. We All of this has been about locating the place and its history. Now let's talk about finding the records. Okay. First, ask if the generating entity was ecclesiastical or governmental. That's our first question. We need to figure out where to go in that broad division as our initial search for records. Next. And then ask the question, what geographical entity did it control? Now, this is important. This happens to be a picture to remind me of what we're talking about of the archival per ref reference personnel in the Archivo de la Real Chancillería in Valladolid in Spain. And that Chancillería was responsible for all appellate court cases going directly from the municipality to the Crown's courts from 1240 until 1835 for the area north of the Taco River. So if my town, Gargantaloya, is north, 
And it is. I'm going to find records here. On the other hand, the other town for that same family is Logrosan. It's south of the Tajo River. Its records are going to be in Granada. So knowing the geographical area that's covered, knowing that Albacete Diocese was not created till 1949, and therefore I need to know, did the parish of Lesusa belong to Toledo or Cuenca, are the kinds of questions that are very important. By the way, uh, one, this is one of... Uh, half a dozen Spanish National Archive system archives, and the personnel marvelous, uh, the work that they're doing, they are indexing those 86 kilometers of records, and they're doing about 5% a year and putting them online, so marvelous opportunities. Next. All right, what about parish records? That's our fundamental. First question we ought to be asking, are they microfilmed? Are they available? in the local family history center. Next. Um, the LDS Church maintains family history centers all over the world, um, something about tw like about 2,500 of them. Uh, there's always going to be one fairly close. Um, they're run by the Mormon Church, but the vast majority of the people who use them are not Latter-day Saints. They're not Mormons. Uh, this happens to be the exterior of one in uh, La Plata in Argentina and the interior of one in Madrid in Spain. Um, online is the, the family search site where you can go to get a wide variety of information, but I always head for the Family History Library catalog because I'm looking for those real records that Claire Tech talked about. Going to the next. It's a worldwide system. Uh, they have microfilm, well they have over two and a half million rolls of microfilm in the collection. This is in the vault uh, where the original negatives are stored. The library, the main headquarter library, is in Salt Lake City. And as I said, there are branches everywhere. In terms of learning how to use the catalog, if you're not familiar with the catalog or the system itself, we have at Brigham Young University a set of online lessons designed for our religion classes, but with a lot of detailed information on how to use that, those materials, uh, and that's at 261.byu.edu, and you can take a look there. Let's move on to the next. This is the catalog, and you do a place search. Again, we're place-oriented. So you type in the name of a place, uh, oh, let's Buño Grande in Avila, and you hit search, and you go to the next screen. And you see where we've typed it in, and it appears, and it indicates to me that there are two categories of records, church records and census records. By the way, this is a town of 200 people in Spain. Next. And there are church records. And it tells me that these are records that were filmed from the originals in the diocesan archive in Avila, which is great. I want to know where those originals are. Uh, it also tells me that it includes not only those for Muno Grande, but for a small, smaller yet town called Castillo Blanco, which became important in my research. Next. And this is the film list, with only two films. These are not a large amount of records. I looked at these records the first time, sitting in the parish in 1978, with the priest looking at me as I sat in his kitchen, on the kitchen table, reading these records. Believe me, it's considerably easier to work with them on microfilm. Uh, nowhere's near the challenges that there were then. But uh, these are available. And we can, we can do that. And there are, the largest collection is the Latin American collection. 
when you bring all of the countries of Latin America and add Spain and Portugal, it's the single largest collection of materials in the Family History Library. So and it's marvelous at how much they have. It'll vary from place to place. Take Ecuador. Quito has been filmed. Ambato Diocese has been filmed. But two or three of the others in that same area have not. So you have to go in and you have to look because they negotiate many of the Catholic Church contracts one by one, diocese by diocese. All 250 parishes of Chicago outside of our area but are filmed. You get this kind of variety as you look at it. Take a look at the next one. They also do other types of records. This is a marvelous census done in 1750s where they went through and property by property described everything that was owned. They're getting ready to do a new taxation system. I can tell you for the family I was looking at here how many cows they owned, how many acres they had planted, what they were planted in, the fact that he ran a small, I don't remember now what the business was like, uh, weaving or something on the side. All economic activity and property ownership are described in this census. Uh, for this tiny town of Muno Grande, it's a volume that thick. Marvelously preserved and available on microfilm for us. Next. All right, what if there are no filmed records? It does happen. Mexico is about 99% filmed. Argentina, about 85. Spain, about 30%. And it varies in those. So what about the non-filmed? Next. Well, we're back to those same things. The geographical dictionaries, the ecclesiastical directories, next. Often will help us keep going. We've looked at the one for Argentina, next. Uh, we've talked about the Dia de la Iglesia. And also we want to talk about online, the Censo Guia, the Archivos Iberoamericanos, which is found at www.aer.es. Crucial site for Spain. A lot more about it in this afternoon's lecture if you go to hear me again. Next. Again, the Guia de la Iglesia, we've talked about the fact that it describes the beginning dates for all of the parish records. Um, about 95% of all 29,000 parishes are listed here. There's an up-to-date version that's available online next. Uh, it came with a map. I finally, I hunted everywhere in Spain and couldn't find a copy of this map. I happened to be down in our own university map collection one day, and sure enough, there was a copy of it. So we printed off colored versions and sent them to friends in Spain so that they'd have access. Next. This is the website that I mentioned, www.aer, not, not to be confused with www.rae for Real Academia Española, which has marvelous historical dictionaries that can also be helpful, but not for our theme. Next, this is the entry to the site. You have to sign up. You have to do it in Spanish. It's got to be one of the world's least friendly sites. And uh, occasionally it works, but when it does, it's marvelous. But uh, it usually, for some reason, takes me about three tries to get my password to go through. Um, our purpose here is to look at the Senso Guia, which I've highlighted with the arrow at the next level. Keep going. It will produce a directory of archives. This happens to refer to a historical provincial archive, but it will also often get down to municipal level and other levels of archives, even parish archives are described. Going to the next, that's the information it gave us on this particular, the contact information, including a website 
and an email address to write the archive. They're excellent responding. I have written saying, I have this small town that I'm researching in. Do you have notarial records? And very often, they, if they're computerized, they'll send me back a printout of the 30, 40, 50, 150 volumes that they have for that town that I'm working in. Next. There are other sites. The Basque sites are marvelous. This one, they're going to all archives from the local municipality and parish to the National Archives gathering information about the Basques, this ethnic no, national fever that there is. And when you get under Betator, you actually get an online version of this. I have accessed records from the mid-1500s back into the 1400s from the municipal archive in a town of Bergada of about 3,000 people using this and then writing to them and having them send me a copy of the document. Go ahead. Uh, there also now the Catholic Church is beginning for the Basque countries to put online the actual parish records, digital copies. This is the first of this has been doing practically anywhere I'm aware of, but definitely in Spain. Next. Um, that's the site for that. Next. All right. If you don't find it on the Internet, it probably isn't there. Then you need to write to the parish or civil register. I have for years, I have a book out called Finding Your Hispanic Roots where there's a sample letter in Spanish if you're not fluent. I have for years been writing to Spain and getting very good results, uh, probably 95% answer rate. My friend Peter Carr, who wrote the book on Cuban research, tells me that he's had about a 60 to 65% answer rate for parishes in Cuba. Um, and fortunately, everything's microfilmed in Mexico, practically, so we don't have to write the parishes in Mexico. I will say nothing more about the Mexican postal system. But... Uh, <laughs> had good rate, uh, success in writing and getting answers. You don't ask for very much. You ask for one example, one reference, an entry at a time. They don't have time to do that. In fact, I've had that experience. A client has written and said, can you help me? And she sent a fat pedigree chart and four or five family group sheets. I've arrived two years later. She never heard back. And the priest says, oh, that sounds familiar. She wrote me and he hands me a half-finished pedigree chart with six or seven family group sheets, and he said, I just haven't had time to finish the job. I've also had the arrived in the parish and found the letter marking the spot in the book where I needed to go, and they just never wrote back. So only ask for one thing, and that's the key, looking at the next. Again, the priests are very friendly. I've, I've come to number many of them among my closest friends. Next. There's so much more to find. Let's keep going. There's guides, inventories, indexes, catalogs, everything you'd associate with archives. Next, you can find it out there in Ireland and WorldCat, see where it is here. Of course, if you're in Washington, you've got the Library of Congress, which has almost anything you could imagine in this category. The collection in the Hispanic room is spectacular. Next, next, online. All right, governmental archives. We've talked about civil registration archives. Go ahead, keep going. Uh, municipal archives are excellent in their material. I've used them in Mexico extensively, a lot, of course, in Spain um, and other countries as well. Next, um, keep going. Provincial and state archives. This is usually where you find the notarial records, often census records. Again, wide variety of materials available at that level. Next, uh, this is one in uh, Valladolid. Next, uh, the French have the same thing. Next. 
the reading rooms, I couldn't hardly tell you what country it is. They all tend to look very similar and not unlike our reading room here in this archive. Uh, and the service is excellent. Trained professionals who are friendly and helpful, sympathetic to genealogists and the kinds of research needs that we have. And the lovely lady there at the bottom right is my wife. Next. Okay. In some areas, the church collections have been brought into the state archives. This is true in Portugal. It's true in um, France as well. Next, National Archives. That's the topic of my discussion in the, the afternoon. Next, the spectacular one is Portugal. With all due respect, it's the best National Archive been into the, in the world. Small country, incredible collection, and they've built for the future to the point where they actually have an extra reading room that they're not using yet hoping for expansion in the future. Uh, right there at the University uh, in Lisbon. Next. We want to get you into it. Spain, on the other hand, according to their own comments, has the worst designed archive. It has four circular stairways connecting the archival storage units from floor to floor, which if there were to be a fire, would be incredible chimneys. Uh, anyway, that was their comment. The example of the worst, but the, the record collections are marvelous. Next. And the Real Chancellor, I've already talked about that in Valladolid. Next. There are numerous guides available for these collections. Next. Next. Such as the inventory for the collections from Puerto Rico. Uh, six different major collections have identified this happens to be the treasury section for the 19th century. Next. Descriptions of documents. Next. Indexes. Go ahead. And other collections, such as from the archive at Simancas, which is the oldest existing archive continually functioning in the world, uh, was for the Crown of Castile. And these are service records for soldiers who served in the Americas, covering all of the countries we're looking at. Next, uh, with an alphabetical um, index analysis of those records, and those are microfilmed. More about that in the afternoon. Next. Again, we've talked about the AER site and the indexing that's going on there as part of all of this. Next. And there are military archives. Just have to show you the one in Segovia. Next. This is the castle from, castle from Camelot. You may, if you're old enough to have watched the Camelot, you may recognize it. Next. The kinds of records you get are these type of civil or military service records. Very similar to our own U.S. service and pension records. Next. Um, marvelous collections that shouldn't be in here. Keep going. You may find them also at the libraries and other places. The possibilities are endless. The Hispanic record sources are every bit as good, in most cases much better than what we have in the United States. There's a myth that you sometimes run into, oh, well, they don't really have records. Not the case. I have not worked in a Hispanic country, even Bolivia, where they did not have excellent record materials available. And you can do detailed genealogies, writing the history, putting them into the context in, that are every bit as detailed and every bit as exciting and interesting and well done as what you can do with Anglo-American records. Next. There are always occasional surprises where they store the records. <laughs> but that's okay. You just sit down and begin reading. Now, next. All right. In our remaining uh, four minutes, we want to talk about putting our ancestors into their place. Next. Next. Okay. How can I learn more about that little tiny town? 
There's a wide variety of published and original materials about the town. Next, um, you can get details about the marriage from a variety of sources. Seeing the chapel where they were married is important. Realizing that the bride probably almost certainly did not wear white. May have worn red. That was the traditional color in southern Italy. But more likely she was married in a nice dress because she only owned six of them during her lifetime. It's not likely that she had a special one to get married into. No, she was probably grateful it was just a new outfit. Next. The church is part of the story, and it's marvelous to see these original beautiful churches next. But put them in the context of the valley they lived in next, of the small community. This is a vast community in the town of Ansoategi. And even down to, in this case, with the Basque countries next, the original casa, the original home, where the surname comes from, if you're doing Basque research. Next. There, I found this when I was in the National Post Office in, in downtown Madrid one day, and I can't resist a book fair. In fact, it's killing me to be up here when I know there's a major book exhibit going on in the outside. Uh, and I was just rummaging through what they had, and I found for my region, Estremadura, a book about the popular architecture. Well, immediately I picked it up, and the first thing I did was opened it to the back and looked for Garganta Loya, and much to my pleasant surprise, there were seven pages on Garganta with these kinds of drawings and a discussion of the town and what it looked like in 1950. Well, it hadn't changed much from 1850 or 1750, so I got some good views of the town, which has changed recently quite dramatically. Next. One of the things that was fascinating is it drew the houses, and I realized that those charming balconies on the third floor were not the bedrooms, they were the kitchen. And since then I've had a chance to go in and inspect some of the houses on site. The kitchen was on the top floor, no chimneys, they just simply allowed the smoke to go out through the tile roof, passing through the attic above the third floor, where they would hang the hams and the other materials they wanted dried, and it was a very effective and efficient system. With one exception, ladies, how would you feel about having to take all of the water, all of the grain, all of the meat, anything you cooked went up two flights of winding wood stairs to get to the third floor. Clearly the system was efficient, but it was designed by a man. <laughs> Next. Again, that's the new bridge in town. It's dated on the bridge 1575. That kind of changes your perspective of what's new. And when you think about that, some of the old houses, the central square, again, capturing this, uh, that supposedly is the house where uh, Charles V, when he brought, hurt himself, was brought to recuperate. It was also the house of ill fame, and we won't go into further discussion, but those are part of the town's... Probably after Charles stayed there. We're not sure. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we didn't want to give Charles too much credit. Right. Okay, next. There are also written records. This is a 1791 census that they did. Not a population census, but a description. Next. Um, for example, they asked a series of questions. They answered. Principal harvests were within the limits of the town. Wine, oil, and silk. Used to be chestnuts, but they've had a loss of the trees. They had a blight on the chestnut trees, and all of a sudden the major crop disappeared. Talk about economic dislocation. I've also looked at the parish records in that time period and realized the population of the town dropped by about 30%. Again, there's much more to this than mere genealogical details. We're putting together the life story. Next, there's no cemetery, and it's not considered necessary. After all, burial takes place in the parish church. 
Hey, folks, this is 1791. The king ordered the creation of cemeteries in 1785. It would take them another 50 years in most of these towns before they really started doing what the order said. Instead, what did they do? They buried them in the church. Next. Excuse me, this is actually in reverse, but this is the burial plots. They would crack open the floor, and plot 28, for stone, tomb 28, would lift up the stones and put the dead person in. A lot of lie, no coffin, and in a few years, they clean the bones out, and somebody else would go into it. There are no cemeteries anywhere in Spain that go back before 1787. By the way, the royal order was observed in New Orleans, although I don't know what condition it's in now. The St. Charles Cemetery in New Orleans is a result of obeying the king's order, and it began in the late 1780s. So are the magnificent cemeteries, Recoleta, and others in Buenos Aires and uh, Mexico City. The colonists tended to be better at obeying the order than the small towns in Spain. Next. Um, one school for boys, a primary grade, which a few girls attend, because there's no female teacher for the girls, who would be very useful? Now, there's the political commentary. Somebody's pushing women's rights. This is in 1791. Uh, it talks about the endowment and the fact that the citizens contribute for their children to go beyond what the city pays for. Next. Another question specifically asked about flour mills and identified the owner of all ten of the mills. We've been in, I've actually physically been in a couple of the remains of these. And it belonged to Pedro Gomez Nigarol. Described where it was located. It had one stone and how much it produced each year. Next. And this was Pedro's will in which he gave away at his death that mill. Next. Don't forget the physical objects. The baskets, the pottery. Next. The lifestyles that are associated, the kinds of things that went on. There's an awful lot of it. marvelous ethnographic museums and other collections available to us. Next. Our goal is to put our ancestors into that context. To find them, to trace their your genealogy, but beyond that, to tell their story. And it's a marvelous story. Look at this couple and just imagine what their life was like. Even though it's a small town, there's so much we can learn. Welcome to the wonderful world of Hispanic genealogy, and I thank you. Thank you, Professor Reiskamp. Um, we'll break now for lunch. I'd like to remind you that we reconvene at 1 o'clock on the dot this afternoon, and... As I said earlier, we have three tracks. There are three sessions offered at one, at two, and at three. So you need to select which, which most appeals to you. And Professor Reich's camp will be speaking again at one o'clock so, on Archives in Spain. And so good luck during lunch. It's probably going to be crowded out there. We have vending machines on our lower level. That's it, vending machines. Um, and again, if you want to go around the building to Pennsylvania Avenue side and across the street, there are delis and little restaurants over there, and that's your best bet. We'll see you on the, on the conference center on the mezzanine at 1 o'clock. Thank you. There. Are they? Yes. Either. They're all the way around? Yeah, because that's, that's where the, the memorial is. Yes. That's where they are. Oh. It's, it was so maybe we can't avoid this.